You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. A new sermon series this morning called Life Together. We're going to be walking through Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 and discussing the unity of God's church. Uh, and so we pray it blesses us. Um, and so we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, uh, there are some hardback black ones in the seat pockets. You should be around page 977 in most of those. Uh, so you can turn there. If you have your own, you can turn there as well or on the screen. So once again, it's going to be Ephesians uh, chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And if you're able and willing this morning, if you could stand with me for the reading of God's word, we're going to read it together. So Providence, hear the word of the Lord. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Um, man, my name is Corey. Um, I have, I guess to introduce myself, a lot of you I know, I've known for a long time. A lot of you I don't know. Uh, you have probably uh, entered the church in, in whatever way since the last time that I was up here, which has been about two and a half years, which is crazy. Uh, if you think about that, I, I'm a former elder here at Providence, served about a three, three to four year term. Um, here's an elder and back in January of 2020 rolled off. I took about a two year sabbatical, which if I'm honest with you, a lot of stuff went on during that sabbatical. I wasn't sure that I would be back. I don't have time to walk through that this morning. So my hope is, Court and I sat down a couple of weeks ago and recorded about an hour and a half long uh, podcast that's called The Provcast. It's on our podcast page. And if you haven't had an opportunity to listen to that, particularly if you're a member of the church, um, I would appreciate it if you would just take some time on your commute or whatever to listen through that. There's a lot of stuff that we talk through in there that I want you to know. Um, like I said, I don't have time this morning to articulate all of it. And, and I don't... I, 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 I don't know that I can commit to sitting down with all of you in the short frame of time in order to articulate it to you personally. So that's why we recorded it. And if you would just take some time and listen to that, it would mean a lot to me. Um, like I said, former elder here about three or four years. I'm going to be rolling back on in August onto the team officially. But what I wanted to say to you guys this morning is that more than anything, the distinction that I want to make about myself to you is that I'm a member of this church. <laughs> Come on, man. And here's the thing. Here's why that's important. If you listen to the podcast, we'll talk through a lot of the struggles that I've had over the last couple of years, a lot of the things that I've battled through, the work that the Lord's done in my life on behalf of myself and my family to get back to this point in time. And what I didn't understand until recently was that as a member of this church, that there were a lot of you who were also members of this church that were praying for me regularly during that time. And I you might have told me, <laughs> you might have talked to me about that, but in my mind, I did not recognize that when the announcement was made last week, I've had the opportunity, a lot of you guys, several of you have reached out and, and told me that directly, that you have been praying for me for however, you know, two years, however long it's been, and, and that's why it's important for me to say that I, I'm a member here, 
because what I've just explained is what we should be doing for one another regularly. And I have failed badly at that, as we all have. But it's important to remember that regardless of any of the other things, any of the other titles, any of the other levels of leadership that may come, first and foremost, we're members of the body of Christ and the local expression of that here at Providence, which is important. Um, If you are a first-time guest, that was all probably pretty weird because you're like... (laughs) Family business right at the beginning. It is what it is. Uh, if you're a first-time guest, man, I'm, I'm so thankful you're here. We are so thankful you're here. Our hope is this morning that we would make much of Christ and that through that you would want to join the local body. You'd want to be a part of this church. You would want to um, experience what I just explained that, that I've experienced over the, over the last couple of years. So without further ado, as Eric has told you, if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. One through six. I've got the um, privilege, the almost an unspeakable privilege, based on what I, all everything that I just said, to introduce a new series to you this morning called "Life Together: A Guide to Being the Church." Now we're going to be spending the next three months in chapters four, five, and six of Ephesians, discussing the various ways that, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God is forming the church, which is us, into the image of Jesus. So this is incredibly important instruction from the Apostle Paul written to the church in Ephesus. Now, it's important to kind of understand some of the context related to Ephesus at the time that Paul wrote this letter and also at the time that he originally planted the church. Ephesus was a city that was located in what today we would consider to be like the western coast of Turkey, right? So the proximity to water, they were on the water, they had a proximity to water, and due to that, it was an important trade hub due to the port that was there. And due to being an important trade hub, it was a very, very prosperous city. There was a lot of prosperity there, a lot of people making a lot of money based on the fact that it was set up that way. I, when I was, I was reading through this, I, I, I'm in oil and gas for, for my, my career, uh, my secular career, and, and I thought through that, and I thought, man, that's in a lot of ways, it's like Houston is with the oil and gas industry. I told my wife one time, and I still say this because I don't know what the answer is. When we leave, my brother lives in Austin, or anytime that we go to visit him or we go away from the coast and we're traveling west or north in Texas, I say the same thing every time. I say, I don't know what people up here do for a living. I have no idea how they make money. Do they build fence? Do they have cows? What do they do? I have no clue because everyone that I know, everyone that I know for the most part in this part of the world makes money in oil and gas. And that's how they take care of their family. And Ephesus was much like that in in the way that they handled their business and how it was predicated on the port that was there. It was also a place full of pagan worship, including many temples built to pagan gods. And Paul shows up in Ephesus somewhere around AD 52, 54, somewhere in there, depending on who you read, and begins preaching the gospel to the Gentiles that were there. Now, if you know anything about the history of Jews and Gentiles, you'll know that, that Paul, who by his own account, was a super Jew, a Jew of all Jews, right? He was the, the, the top of the Jews. Preaching salvation through Christ to the Gentiles would have been an incredibly scandalous message. So scandalous, in fact, that it, it, was, it, it ended up landing him in prison. It landed him in captivity, which is something we'll talk about later. It's not a common message at the time, but Paul had been given a specific message by Christ, as we see in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 9, verse 15. But the Lord said to him, speaking to uh, someone that the Lord was sending to speak to Paul says, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and Kings and the children of Israel. So the Lord has called Paul into this specific calling to preach the gospel to the Gentiles and Paul grabs hold of the call. 
And that's how he ends up in Ephesus. He's preaching to Gentiles. He's planting a Christian church in a pagan city. The instruction that Paul gives to the believers in Ephesus in this letter is as applicable to our lives today as it was when the letter was penned, as is all of Scripture. But this, there's so much application. There's so many points in here that we can immediately take and apply to our lives as the local expression of the church and be better for it, be more like Christ for it. And particularly... If we believe what we say we believe, which is that the church is truly about what we say we're about, which is living life together on mission so that we might reflect the radically life-changing grace of God to a lost and dying world. If that is true, then what we're about to read is of utmost importance. Now, what I want to do, I want to zoom in a little bit, right? It's easy to read this and apply it to the universal church. So that would be all believers from all over the earth that are joined together in Christ, which we'll talk about later. But for our particular uh, purposes this morning, I want to zoom in. And I want to say this. I would say that from where we are as a church in this moment, the message in these three chapters that we'll be in for the next three months is incredibly important for us. <laughs> it is incredibly important for us, particularly today as we work through Paul's call for unity among believers at Ephesus. You guys have been around. We've experienced a bit of upheaval in the last six months. The first half of 2021 has not necessarily, the Lord has been kind to us, but circumstances have not been kind to us, right? We've seen changes in leadership, some that are heartbreaking and some that are hopefully exciting. Surprise. Right? That's me. We've seen breaking of relationships. We've seen members rolling off. We've been displaced due to a flood. Did I miss anything? Anything else anybody wants to add? There's been a lot going on here. And in those circumstances, what often happens is the enemy will sneak himself in and he'll begin to divide the church. He'll begin to create sex inside of the church. And I don't know if you've paid any attention, you probably have, to the culture, to the world that is around us. Court and I talk about this all the time. There's a lot going on, and the only answer to what is going on in the world is the gospel of Jesus. And the number one thing, the number one thing that Satan can do to make sure that that gospel is not powerful and changing the culture is divide the church. Period. Universal and local. So it's important that we're paying attention to what Paul is saying because for us right now, this is incredibly important, not just for the life of our church, but the culture and the time that our church is active in right now. It's important stuff. So I want to start today. I want to begin by praying. I want to ask the Lord to be with us as we jump into the scripture. So if you'll join me in praying. Father, first off, we love you, and we're just thankful that we know that you're here with us today. Lord, we're thankful that we know you're here and you have purpose that you want to accomplish in our lives. Lord, I pray that, that this morning you would just clear distractions from our mind. God, clear anything that might keep us from focusing in and hearing the truth of your word today, Father. I pray that, that hearts would be changed, God, starting with mine, and Lord, that we would, we would see fruit from what we're going to go through, not just today, but through the summer. Lord, help us to be a unified church. Help us to, uh, to be one in mission in the world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, jumping right into the scripture, starting in verse 1, he writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So he starts with two particular words that are important. I therefore... So Paul is pointing back to what he wrote in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesus as the foundation for what he's going to write in the future as he goes forward starting in, in chapter 4. Paul's about to give us six verses here of application that can be used to ensure that we're living in such a way as to foster unity in the body of Christ. But he's also aware, and we should be aware, 
that these things he would instruct the church to do would be unnatural without a supernatural move of God in every believer's heart. It is impossible to apply the unity that Paul is going to ask us to apply apart from Christ, apart from a changed heart in, in the Holy Spirit. So Paul starts by explaining why that is true for the church at Ephesus. Apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, we have no power to live the life he will instruct the believers to live. That's why he doesn't shift to instruction until chapter 4. Paul's about to explain to the church how they should be viewing their relationship with one another. But first, he builds his case upon the foundation of why they have the ability to do so. He gives us the what in chapter 4, but only after he gives us the why in chapters 1 through 3. It's important. And, and, and frankly, it's an absolute tragedy that we don't have enough time to spend a bunch of time in chapters 1 through 3. It's an incredibly uh, theological Beautiful reminder of who we are in Christ and what Christ has done for us. And if we had more time, I'd spend more time there, but I don't have that time. So what I did was I pulled a few high points out from the first three chapters to help us understand that foundation upon which Paul is building chapter 4. And I'm paraphrasing a bit here. I'm going to run through them quickly so that we kind of understand, and then we'll get into the actual text we're looking at today. In chapter 1, verse 4, Paul tells us that God chose us for himself before the world was created. Chapter 1, verse 5, he says, God predestined us to be his children, and that means heirs of all that our Father owns. Chapter 1, verse 7, God sent Christ to atone for our trespasses. Chapter 1, verse 13, God sealed us with his Holy Spirit to preserve us forever. Chapter 2, verse 7, God promises to spend eternity increasing our joy in the immeasurable riches of his grace. That's a good one. That's a really good one. Chapter 3, verse 10, God has given us the mission as a church to display his wisdom, even to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Or, as he says in chapter 1, verse 12, we are destined and appointed to live for the praise of his glory. Man, that's good stuff. That last one makes me feel just a little charismatic. Just a little. And if we keep going down this road, court's going to have to bring me a towel and a stick mic so I can really start preaching. Having said that, it's almost as though Paul knew that that would happen because the very next thing he tells us in verse one is that he is a prisoner for the Lord. Nothing will ruin your charismatic experience faster than being reminded that Paul is writing this letter to the church as a prisoner in Rome. He's excited, he's fired up, he's explaining the gospel to his listeners, but yet he sits in captivity as he pins. Oh, oh, that we would have that level of joy in the midst of persecution that we would have that level of joy in the midst of what we would consider to be tragedy, that we would write the words that he writes in the first three chapters in the midst of that hardship. You know what I'm writing if I'm in prison? I'm writing, somebody call a congressman. Who knows Dan Crenshaw? Call somebody and get me out because I didn't do anything wrong. But yet Paul says, you know, you know what I'll do with my time? I'll continue to preach the gospel from prison, even if it's through a pen. It's incredible that he was able to do that and that he had the power to do that. And he's in this position, he's in captivity as a result of his insistence on preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. Look at Acts, I don't want you to look at it, I'm just going to tell you. In Acts 24, the Jews, they've accused Paul of being a pest who stirs up, who stirs up dissension in the name of Jesus. And that is what has landed him into Roman captivity, right? Yet here he is, as I said, continuing to preach through letters and we... We'll continue on in verse 1. He tells the church at Ephesus, he says, I urge you to walk in a manner 
worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul is urging the Ephesian church to live in such a way as to demonstrate the immeasurable worth of being called into a relationship with Christ. Flip back with me if you have your Bible. It should be up on the screen also. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, I want to read this. It's having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of which he has called you to, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul reminds the church that he's writing from captivity in order to demonstrate that he knows the hope to which he was called, and he understands the riches of his glorious inheritance. And those riches, that inheritance, it's not here. It's not here. We don't have it. The Lord has blessed us. He's given us great things. He's taken care of us. He is, he's done all the things that he promised that he would do. But if you think the riches and the inheritance that Paul speaks about in chapter 1, verse 18 are here, you're wrong. They're later when we are unified with Christ for eternity. Right, and this is what Paul, this is what he's trying to say. Paul's circumstances change. His mission never does because no matter what, Christ is worthy in spite of all of it, no matter what, no matter what the hardship is. In 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul lists a, first he lists his qualifications, which I think is cool. He starts off by saying, here's all the reasons why I'm the man. And then he backs that up a little bit and he begins to list his sufferings in the midst of being the man, being the super Jew. He says he was in prison, he was shipwrecked, he was beaten, he was stoned, he was snake bit. That's just a sample. Two of these things, I would rather be beaten and stoned than be shipwrecked and bit by a snake. If you know me at all, I had this incredible fear of open water. I hate it. I went on a cruise one time, it's a true story. One cruise, probably never go on another one. I was so nervous that before the boat even left port, I took a drama meme because I was like, I'm going to get seasick because I don't like being out here. Then I made a terrible error because I didn't read the package on the drama meme, and I decided that since I was on a boat, that I would indulge in an adult beverage. And those two things don't do well together. Therefore, the first like six hours I was on that boat, I was asleep in the room, just knocked out. Because I, I didn't want, you know, I was, I was concerned. I didn't want to be there. I didn't want the boat to go away, and I'm left out in the water. Paul says he did all of those things, but yet the Scripture tells us he never wavered. He never stopped. He never pulled up. He never said this is enough. He never said any of those things. He continued to do that which he was called to do. And the life of a believer should be marked by a proper response to what God has done for us, regardless of how bad our current circumstances seem. And standing here today... That is an odd thing for me to articulate to you because I was quite the opposite of this not long ago. My circumstances, the things that surrounded me said, you got to stop. You got to back away. You got to take a break. And while that was the right thing for me to do, what the wrong thing for me to do was not just to take a break from the church, but also to say, okay, and because I'm taking this break and I don't need to be prepared at this level, I'll just take a break everywhere and I'll continue to slide down this hill until one day I'll wake up and go, why am I so far from God? Paul says, don't do that. Don't do that. In response to the gospel, we live in a way that is worthy of our calling. If we don't get that, if we don't understand that, then we don't truly get the gospel. Right? We don't truly get the gospel. Those, those shortcomings, those failings, that those trials, that you know, persecution that you may encounter, all of those things, 
when the gospel is applied to them, they pale in comparison to the glory of Jesus. Once again, that's why Paul wrote chapters 1 through 3. And if we miss that, then we are missing the truth of the gospel and how it is applicable to us. So how does Paul instruct the church to do this? Reading on into verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So he starts off with uh, humility. He tells them in order to do this, you must have humility. And at the time Paul was writing this, humility was not a highly regarded value among the people of Ephesus, right? Remember, port city, lots of trade, lots of economic success, affluent people among the population. And that does not necessarily always breed humility. It does a lot of times because there's people that are humble because of their response to the gospel. But for the most part, the better we do on our own apart from God, the more prideful we become and we think that we are the ones that are doing good. When in essence, God is blessing our lives throughout all of that. And here's the thing, not much has changed. We also do not live in a time that regards humility as an enviable character trait. I'm a big sports guy, big sports guy particularly football. And one thing that I didn't think was a big deal when I was younger, but I have noticed as time has passed, is the, the evolution of the touchdown celebration. And I, this, is, this is a simple analogy, but I'm, it's to make a point. The evolution of the touchdown celebration has gone from, I score, I hand the ball to the referee, and I go celebrate with my teammates, to coordinated dances with all 11 players on the field. Look at me, look what I did. My kids play football, and I coach them in football Micah scored one touchdown, and it was an accident. Jonah has never scored a touchdown, but I've told them both constantly that the day that it happens, if it ever does, my expectation is that they take the ball to the referee, and then they come back and they celebrate with their teammates because I, I want them to express humility in those moments. And here's the thing, that prideful character trait of our culture is not helped at all by the fact that we live in the, the age of social media. It's not, not helped at all. Social media is one of the greatest tools the enemy has ever created to distract us, to divide us, to make us doubt our own worth, and to inflame our prideful tendencies. And I'm not saying social media is bad. I've got two accounts on my phone, wherever it is right now. But what I've noticed in my own life and what I've noticed in the life of others is that if not managed properly, which you can say this about a lot of things that we have, it can lead to some really bad things for the believer. I had a pastor years ago when I was serving in student ministry named Dick Lundelman. And I'll say his name because he recently retired and he's a great man of God down in Liberty, Texas. He told me back in like 2009, I remember sitting at lunch with him at the local Mexican restaurant. We were talking about Facebook. And he literally looked at me in all seriousness and said, where the devil created Facebook. That's what he told me. And I remember thinking at the time, he's kind of old. You know what I mean? Like he, doesn't, he just doesn't get it because he's old. But here's the truth. I've circled back to him in the last few years and said, you were absolutely right. Absolutely right. Fortunately, that can also be redeemed. But when we're on social media, we do something noteworthy, right? We want to blast it out to our 900 Facebook friends. Feeling cute? Just want to grab a selfie. We share that on the gram so that everyone can tell us how cute we look. Uh, got gains in the gym. Go to the Twitter. Hashtag beast, right? Like, big, look at what I do. And this one, this one's probably going to trigger some folks. It's your anniversary. You type a thousand words. You tell everyone how much you love your spouse and then check back constantly to see likes pile up and hope that the commenters say, I love how much you guys love each other. Huh. Triggered some people. Now, here's the thing. That's not, <laughs> that's not always the case. That's a joke with me and my wife. And, I, and I'm, I say this because today is her birthday. She's not here. She'll be at the late service. And... Uh, 
Every year, whether it's a birthday, Mother's Day, anniversary, whatever, we always ask each other the same question. Do we need to make a post on Facebook or can we just tell each other we love each other? And, uh, and, and we do, right? Like we do that. But here's the thing. Let me, let, me, let me zoom this back in and get to real life. There are actual real life struggles that we have every day with pride. One of the ones that I share with the guys that hold me accountable most often are my struggles with pride at work. I go to work. I work hard. I try to be the best at what I do. But yet there are people that work with me, equals on the org chart, who sometimes do better than me. Sometimes they blur their lines of authority and responsibility, and I feel like they're doing my job. And in those moments, what rises up in me is nothing to be envied. It's terrible. And more often than not, I've gone to my office, I've shut the door, I've grabbed my phone, I've shot a text to a couple of guys and said, hey, please pray for me right now because I'm struggling with this, right? That pride wells up in us. And because of that, it threatens to ruin us and take away our humility, which Paul says is of utmost importance if we're going to have unity in the church. It is so incredibly easy to find ourselves looking down on others, feelings of superiority, feelings of self-righteousness. And here's the thing, it happens in the church way too often, despite Paul's pleas, despite the pleas of the Lord and how we should carry ourselves. Maybe your home group leader's not dynamic enough. Maybe the people we serve with on teams don't move the needle with their service. Maybe elders and staff make decisions we don't agree with, so we gossip and seek allies and secretly discuss how much better our decisions would be. All of those things are rooted in our pride, all of them, every single one of them. And here's the thing, pride is the sworn enemy of unity within the body of Christ. This is why Paul points it out first. Paul's point is if we get the gospel, if we get that our righteousness was to God a filthy rag, that God purchased us back from the dead, that God even drug us to him when we were not interested in him at all, as he explains in the first three chapters of the book, then humility will be predominant in our lives, not pride. How could we be proud? How could we be proud? It breeds humility when we understand the gospel. He goes on to tell them with gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. If we're aware of how God treated us in our sin with gentleness and patience, then we will respond in the same way to those who are around us. Gentleness and patience, if we understand how it was applied to us, it will breed that in our interactions. Gentleness and patience and love should be evident in the way Christians interact with one another within the church. Maybe you've got a tough brother or sister to deal with in a home group. Maybe you're sitting in front of parents, which is, I didn't plan this. The timing is odd on this. But maybe you're sitting in front of parents having a tough time with their kids during gathering. Let me pause. I love your kids being in here. You come into the 1045, I'm going to show you three. Two blonde-headed boys and a dark-haired girl that stir this place up in their mind. They belong to me. So don't, I love you. I'm glad they're, I'm glad they're here with you. Maybe there's one person that looks you up every Sunday and wants to sit next to you, but you can't stand being around him or her. My question today would be how are we as the local church, the local expression of Christ's love to the world and to the community we're planted in, how are we responding to those things? See, Paul would say gentleness, patience, and love should mark each one of those interactions, every one of them. And if we're honest with ourselves more often, maybe not more often than not, but a lot of times, our frustration right? Our need to flee, to get out of it, to find something more comfortable, that's what actually marks it. Moving on, let's read verse 3 together. It says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now remember, Paul is speaking of Jews and Gentiles, but the application here is true for us as the church, just like it was true for them then. No matter who you are, what you have done, your race, your background, your intellect, your job, 
income, ability, age, marital status, any of those things, and more, those of us who know Christ as Savior are all unified through the same gospel. We're all unified through the same gospel. We are all one through that, and we do not attain that unity. I think it's important to point this out in verse 3. Paul tells us to maintain that unity. Now, court is going to spend some time next week talking through a unity in the body that can be attained. And that's important. There's an important distinction between the two. This unity that Paul speaks of is a unity that we have. It's, it's no, nothing we did to get it, and our call is to maintain it. It is gifted to us through a decisive act of atonement and reconciliation in the cross because Christ has already made us one. Christ has already unified us. And our job, what we are called to, is to maintain that unity through the power of the Holy Spirit, just like Paul told us in chapter 1, that God has sealed us with. He has sealed us with the power to maintain that unity. And that is really good news. It's really good news for us. The gospel creates unity in the body, in the church. If we find ourselves desiring disunity, catch this, Oftentimes, we find ourselves desiring disunity. Sometimes it feels good. It feels like the right thing. I need, to, I need to intersect this and tell that person how I feel about them. I need to make sure that people know that I don't agree with whatever is going on. If we find ourselves entertaining the thought of disunity, then we have, we have forgotten the gospel. We've forgotten what it means because the gospel creates unity in the body. If we belong to Christ, if we do not desire to connect with others in the church, although we belong to Christ, and if we don't desire to be involved in their lives and minister to them, or frankly, the other side of the coin, which is more me, if we do not desire to be ministered to by others in the church, you must recognize that there's something very wrong with that. There's something wrong with your heart in those circumstances. And like I said, I am an expert in that area. I am more apt to isolate myself than I am to insulate myself with believers from inside the church. And I have to literally daily war against that. And to the, to the glory of the Lord, he has over the years grown me in that way. But that is more my bend. But either way, whether you don't desire it or you don't desire to do it, we have to recognize that there's something wrong with that. So how does Paul say that we maintain that unity? Well, he told us in verse 2, right? We maintain it through humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. These were all evident in the character of Christ and should be evident in the everyday life of the believer. When we remember the worst in ourselves and the best in others, not being easily given to anger, not immediately seeking revenge when we're wrong forgiving others, asking others to forgive us, assisting each other in distress, and doing it all not from compulsion but in love, we maintain unity within the church. And why does Paul say we should be eager for this type of unity? Verses 4 through 6, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Paul tells the church the reason unity is to be maintained is because by design, the church has only one body, the unified body of believers, those who are living and those who have passed on. 
This is, incre- this, is, this is interesting. That unified body of believers includes believers that have passed on and are now eternally united with Christ. They don't leave the body because they go to be with Christ. They remain part of the body and they are worshiping and loving our Lord. If you listen to the podcast, you, you know that my grandmother passed away earlier this year and we tell some really good stories about her. She's a great lady, was a great lady, is a great lady with Christ. I'm sure he's happy to have her. Um, the idea that I am still unified with her in my worship of the Lord is so comforting to me. When I worship God, I find myself more and more feeling as though I am unified because I know, because I know her, I know that right now as we speak, she's worshiping her king. Right now. That's all she ever wanted to do all the way up until the day that she died. Paul tells the church we have one spirit, which is the Holy Spirit joining believers to our one hope, which is a glory that awaits us all when we are finally with Christ. You see, believers are secured with the same covenant. We are bought with the same blood. We are justified by the same righteousness. We are heirs to the same heavenly inheritance. And all have been made, as we sang a while ago conveniently, all have been made kingdoms and priests unto God. That's what the scripture tells us. All of us, where you're from doesn't matter. What you do doesn't matter. All the things we talked about earlier that the world will use to draw distinctions between us, none of that matters because our common thread is Christ. What he's done and what we inherit because of what he's done. Such good news, man. Now I want to zoom back out a little bit. I told you earlier, we're zooming in. We're going to talk about our local expression. I want to zoom back out and I want to talk through what Paul says next. He tells us that we have one God and Father of all who's over all and through all and in all. See, the omnipresent nature of God means that we are united not just with the believers in this room, not just with the believers on our roles, not just those that are in our locality, but also with the universal church, with every believer from sea to shining sea, I guess that would just be the United States, from world to shining world, whatever you guys know where I'm going with that. We are united to the entire universal church as a body of believers, and there are no distinctions within that church. If you are in Christ, you must be unified with the body because in Christ, to believe in Christ is to belong to the church. You cannot believe in Christ and not belong to the church. You may not join, you may not be on the membership rolls of a local church, but you belong to the church because the church is the expression, the people that believe in the Lord. So if you believe in Christ, you must belong to the church. I must start closing on this, I told you earlier that we would, uh, that Paul told us we had one faith, and I want to return back to that for a second for closing here. Throughout the book of Ephesus, Paul's objective is to unfold God's plan to unite all things in Christ. That's the overranging theme of the entire book, that the Lord is uniting all things in himself. Look at chapter 1. I want to read verses 7 through 10. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, here it is, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, what we know, what we know as believers on this side of glory is that unfortunately until Christ returns, there's always going to be a portion of mankind that will choose to rebel against God. 
Sometimes it's more prominent, sometimes it's less prominent. Sometimes it's in our lives, sometimes it's not in our lives. Sometimes it's our family, sometimes it's not our family. Sometimes it's in our church, sometimes it's not in our church. But at the end of the day, there will always be a portion of mankind that chooses to rebel against God. But one day, Christ is going to return. And when he does, there's going to be a final separation that takes place. And that, in and of itself, is when God will unite all things in him. Two sides There will be two sides to that separation when it happens, when Christ splits the sky and comes back. Be two sides to that separation. There will be those who know Christ and are therefore unified with the bride of Christ. And there will be those who will be found eternally separated from Christ and cast into darkness, which is an incredibly hard truth. Incredibly hard truth for us, but if we... If we miss it, if we gloss over it, if we blunt the edge of it, we're doing a disservice to those who are in the category that will be cast into darkness. We need to be communicating this, and we need to communicate it to each other. And frankly, in this room, I know there are undoubtedly people who will be found on both sides of that separation. Here's what I want to say before before I close. If you know Christ, excuse me, if you do not know Christ today, there's only one remedy for that, and that remedy is the gospel. This, this thing that we've been talking about, this, this theme that Paul has woven all the way through this book, but even in this morning through these six verses of Scripture that we've said over and over again unifies us in the body, the local body, the universal body, all of those things. More than any of that, what it does is it saves us. It saves us. Wretched sinners that we are are saved by Christ through the gospel. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus who stands ready today to cover all of your sin, to fill you with the Holy Spirit. And then, here's the bonus, unite you to his church. Unite you to people that love him and love you and want to be in your life. First and foremost, if you don't know him, that's for you. Secondly, if you do know Christ, but you say you're not or have not been, maybe walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, as we've seen in the scripture today, I want you to know that your remedy is the same. The remedy is always the gospel, regardless of what side of the separation you are on. Maybe you've separated yourself from the bride. Maybe you've been sowing dissension among believers. Maybe you've been critical of others and ignoring your own shortcomings. Whatever it is, the remedy is the gospel. And the same gospel that you applied when you accepted Christ, when you became his child, is the same gospel that you apply when you realize you're in error and you hit your knees, you repent to a holy God that promises to forgive you and keep you on his track. Promises. The gospel is not something that we apply to ourselves and then we forget about for the remainder of our walk with Christ. The gospel must be applied to our lives day in and day out so that we may join the war against Satan who truly desires to destroy us, if we ever allow ourselves, and I'm so guilty of this, if we ever allow ourselves to lose the wonder of what Christ did for us, we easily begin to fall victim to the schemes of Satan who would like nothing more than for us to reflect less of the glory of Christ in the world. At the end of the day, that's his ultimate goal, particularly with believers, because he knows he can't take us away from the Lord. He knows he can't snatch us from the Lord's hand. He knows he can't remove our salvation from us. So what what do we want to do? Let's make them ineffective. Let's ensure that Corey, who has saved and still has sinful tendencies, because we all will on this side of glory, let's make sure that he does nothing to share the gospel with others that Christ might save. The strategy is there, and for us, 
As believers, we must be preaching that gospel to ourselves every day because I said it about myself, but I'll also say it about you. You will sin daily. It's just part of our nature. It's who we are. But hopefully through our relationship with Christ and through these, these tenets and what I'm talking right now about preaching the gospel to ourselves, we will repent. We will grow. Christ will make us more like him. And in that, we will continue to form into who he has called us to be. And I want to close with this. I'm a little over time, but that's okay. I heard John Piper explain the gospel like this once, and it's stuck with me ever since, and I'm paraphrasing here, but what he said was that the Lord doesn't merely look upon us in our sinful state and declare us forgiven. He looks upon us in our sinful state, and he, de- he declares us not guilty. There's a difference there. Like a lot of times we will lose the wonder, right? Let me, I'll speak for myself, but maybe it's applicable. We will lose the wonder of the gospel because we look at it as forgiveness only for sin, which me in my human mind, I can wrap my mind around forgiveness. I'm married. I've forgiven my wife. My wife has forgiven me. We still live in the same house. We still love one another. We have, we have said that, hey, yes, I agree you've wronged me, or I've said, hey, I agree I wronged you, and we've made the decision to forgive one another and continue on moving forward. But what, what, what we're saying here is that God looks upon us, and he declares us not guilty at all as though we've never sinned because the righteousness of Christ is ours. It's crazy. That right there is when we begin, when we understand that, when we apply it, when we hold to it, that's when we begin to really understand that which Christ has done for us that demands our attention, that demands our dedication. The imputed righteousness of Christ renders us not guilty, and that is life-changing truth. And because of that, Paul urges, walk in a manner worthy of a calling to which you have been called. And you have been called to live in the righteousness of Christ because it's been applied to you through the shed blood of Jesus. If any of those things are applicable, if, if you feel as though you are, you are under conviction, it's not condemnation, it's from the Spirit, it's proof that God is working in your life and he still loves you and he's calling you back, and I would pray that this morning you would call upon the name of Jesus for forgiveness of those things. Let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll close. Father, we are we're just we're so thankful for your goodness, Lord. And we're thankful that you, you chose to, to save sinners like us, God, those of us who are completely unworthy of saving. Lord, if... If the penalty of sin is death, God, then death belongs to us, but you. But you did what you did. But you've, you've, you've come and you've died and you've sacrificed so that we might have your righteousness, Father. And I pray that that is the truth, if, if nothing else is heard today, that that is the truth that will sink deep into the hearts of each one of us as we leave this place. Father, I pray for, for unity among this body. God, there's never been a more important time for us to be unified, for us to unify around the gospel, for us to complete the mission that, that you have given us, Father. And I pray that you would empower us for that from every level, from leadership, from elders, all the way down into members, God, to the people that are working with our children in the back. My God, would you empower them to complete that mission that is so important? 
God, that our kids would know you, that our kids wouldn't turn to culture or what's popular or what they see on YouTube or the TV to tell them their worth or to tell them what they should believe about themselves, God, but those that are back there right now, even with babies that can't yet speak, God, I pray that you empower them, that our kids know the gospel. Lord, your grace is, is it's abundant, Father. We love you and we're thankful for it. In the name of Jesus, amen.